This programme focuses on what experimental music and sound art can bring to people's lives, why they're so wonderful. And for this I've spoken to a real expert in this area, Jack Tudor. I spoke to Jack because he does many different things. He's an active musician, author, and he produces a really special podcast, which I particularly wanted to discuss with him. So here's Jack. I'm Jack Tutor. I run Attention Magazine, which is a website for experimental music and sound art. So that's at Attention Magazine, attnmagazine.co.uk. Uh, on that as well, as part of that, I host the Crucial Listening podcast, which you can find at attnmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. And I run a label called Hard Return as well, uh, hardreturn.bandcamp.com for that. That's brilliant. Thanks, Jack. And of course, you're a musician as well, so we'll come on to that later, I hope. Yes. Uh, but let's well, let's start with this this podcast, which I think is just an awesome achievement. I've so loved listening to all the shows, and I've learned such a lot from it. And that's Thank really you. why I wanted to talk, because it, it just raises so many interesting questions. So maybe you could just give us a little bit of background about how you came to develop the podcast. Uh, you know, why did you decide to do it? And this fascinating focus on important records so maybe you could explain the thinking behind that a little yeah sure so crucial listening started in 2017 i'd already been doing attention magazine for about six seven years by that point so interviewing a lot of experimental musicians and sound artists and i'd also just recently before started a podcast about podcasts with my dear friend freddie harrison called episode party so Crucial Listening was a way of smashing those two interests together, podcasts and experimental music and sound art. I think coupled with a third strand, which was I have a real big fear about asking a question that a musician is sick to death of hearing. <laughs> I figured a way I could circumvent that was to pin these interviews on something that was completely apart from their own work and may be quite interesting to them to switch to the role of listener rather than creator and discuss that aspect of what they're doing because I figured if they're making it they probably listen to a few records every now and then so that's how the podcast got started in terms of the focus on important records I guess there's a couple of bits there important is a word that 
I don't know how much thought I actually gave it at the time, but I think in retrospect, I'm really glad I went with it. Rather than favourite records, for example, important records, I think, give so much more scope for discussion in the I let the guests define important and they can go whichever way they want. And we talk about that on the podcast, right? Each guest who comes on, I say, how did you think about the word important when picking your list? And whatever answer they give suddenly gives me a lens through which to see each of their picks that they go through. So there's always stuff to talk about there. Yeah, and they, they, they all gave it hugely different answers there too, didn't they? You got this yes. huge variety of, of what important even means to people. Yeah, exactly. That's it. And so I don't know at what point I twigged that people were taking this in all different directions, but it was a kind of a fluke that I'd chosen important and it proved to be so fruitful. Records... I think because records, there's so much to go into. Say, 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 for example, in comparison to live shows, live shows are a one-shot deal in the sense that you go and see a live show. It may have a huge impact on you. I know loads did for me. Um, it's easy to forget the particulars. There's no opportunity to renew that experience and to uh, reconfigure yourself say like 10 years down the line against that live show you just have those waning memories and this sense that it was important to you whereas with a record you could revisit it you can say yeah I'm still I still love it or it's not to my taste but I see the impact it may hit you differently there's all these lovely things with a record and also selfishly records are the things for me that I think really made the dent in terms of what's important to me. And often the live shows were things I went to when my brain had already been broken by certain bands. I was like, I love this. I'm going to buy a ticket to go see them, right? Yes, yeah, so, you'd already heard the record and then you wanted to see yeah, the it's, band live. Exactly, it sealed yeah. the deal, yeah. That's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, we could have we could talk all even just about that because, of course, <laughs> you know, you, you wind the clock back a hundred years or whatever, and, and there wasn't any recorded music. Yes, and uh, music was entirely live. And of course, some people feel that way today, don't they? That it's got to be a live experience. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So it's possibly a personal thing for you that it's the records you've you valued more. Totally. I, I guess um, as well. You know we can drill down to the fact that CD specifically for me, because I was, you know, 13, 14, when I was first really getting into music. And what is this? 2003, 2004, right? So streaming and digital was a, a, a digital was a very nascent thing. Streaming wasn't a thing. And CDs were the, the way to go. So I still have that relationship to CDs. So it's very much pinned on, you know, because I, I, I think as well in your notes you sent over, we'll probably get onto this later, but maybe albums is a strange focus to have now and maybe like a slightly nostalgic one perhaps in the eyes of some. So, yeah, it's very much pinned around my own experiences uh, in terms of the format of music that really made an impact on me. That's really nice, yeah. It does date you a bit, though, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Because I like my son, you know, he's, what, is he 24? And, he, you know, he's never bought a CD in his life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, that's that's brilliant. Thanks, yeah. That, that gives us a bit of a picture of where you were coming from then with your podcast. Um, but I'm also intrigued. I mean, you've got to nearly 100 shows now, which is which yeah. is spectacular. It's a real <laughs> achievement, I think. And, Thank you. Uh, 
you should be really proud of that. But but I'm intrigued what you've gained from doing, you know, what, what have you gained in terms of an experience from doing all of that? And uh, what have you learned from doing it? Oh, my gosh. Well, so much of my listening now is due to the podcast. I mean, there is there's so much listening. It's Because it's every fortnight, there is the three important picks that the guest selects. I also listen to a whole lot of their, their work in that time as well. So so much of what I listen to these days is dictated by the podcast. I think one wonderful thing I've gained from this experience is listening to records through the lens of knowing that it's someone's important record. You know, there have been albums on this podcast that have come up that I've heard before maybe like once and then moved on from. But having them come back and knowing that they're someone's important record generates such a different listening state for me and a different appreciation that I'm really grateful for. Um, In terms of what I've gained as a host, I talk a lot less, I hope. Yeah, you've learned to shut up. You have. You have learned to shut up. (laughs) Yeah, obviously it is hard because we're talking about listening, right, with the guests. And so there's a greater degree of equivalence between me and the guest in the you know we, we we love listening to music and it's so easy to get sucked into wanting to share my thoughts especially when it's an album that's important to me that's being put on the table and I've always found actually that when I listen back to those episodes where I've splurged all over the podcast about what I think <laughs> uh, surprise surprise the guest talks less and because I'm investing less energy in finding interesting ways to approach their relationship with the record we just get less distance covered in the discussion you know so it's a real conscious battle all the time and it speaks a lot I think to my disgusting ego that in my (laughs) head (laughs) and often sometimes in post edit um, but less and less these days I'm having to you know that there there are times where I'm really resisting the urge to share my thoughts and instead try and go for a question instead and I'm also trying to make those questions a bit sharper and shorter and simpler again I think it's kind of an expression of my ego when I try and make a question all convoluted like I'm trying to show oh, how much research <laughs> <laughs> I really like those convoluted questions yeah I, I mean I'm, I'm my mind is blown by the fact that you sat through and listened to around 300 records <laughs> chosen by other people. And I was thinking for yeah. myself, would I even want to do that? Because you've no idea what they're going to choose. And uh, Yeah. You know, uh, but a hugely diverse range of stuff, of course. So, I'm re- again, I'm really fascinated what that's given you. Has it, has it expanded your musical horizons? And uh, has it changed what you listen to? Yeah, big time. I think... Sometimes it's been hard. If I know the artists, and I, this happens very rarely, but for example, Claire Rousey came on and picked a Sun Kill Moon record, and it's like 70 minutes long, and I really quite fervently dislike Sun Kill Moon. <laughs> <laughs> and really don't enjoy Mark Kozelek's company at all. So times like that, I try and be as open as possible. I think the podcast suffers if I'm not. And thankfully, I think Claire as well picked that. She said, I like listening to assholes. So it wasn't like, um, <laughs> that, you know, I was coming in with a, an opinion that was completely different to hers. But um, most of the time, it's 
great. What's been awesome is listening to a lot of bands that have been on the periphery of my consciousness that I've just never gone for, you know, because there's just not enough time in the world. So, you know, listening to like a T-Rex record from start to finish or an Earth, Wind and Fire record from start to finish. Which, which you've you know, never really done, had you? I remember you admitting the, yeah. the, your T-Rex ignorance. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, this is it because I, I, I do have my own set of tastes and I, I think this podcast is great for questioning those and trying to bust me out of my little bubble. I mean, I think there are styles of music which are really underrepresented on the podcast. Um, so there's not a lot of hip hop. That's true. Which uh, yes. is a real shame. I've, you know, they're, they're, I think there probably should be if I was doing my job right in terms of trying to get the most diverse sect of guests as possible. But hey, you know, that's something to fix between episodes 101 and 200, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's on the to-do list then. Yeah. <laughs> so so it sounds like actually some of the listening has actually challenged you in, in some ways from what you're saying. And you've yeah. obviously responded positively to that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think so. I think the sheer knowledge that I have to go on and then um, question a guest about why this record is important to them. Like I say, the, the mere fact knowing that it's important to someone, I think it's really revealing isn't it you're like well this must have a root in yeah what 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 it really is good for 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 hitting home is the fact that so i think for example byron westbrook came on and picked a bob dylan record it's not one of his best records but byron talked about being really interested in the near misses and that's right which is amazing because then you know that there are so many dimensions to a record which makes it worth listening to and if something didn't come out quite right maybe there's i think we talked about it on that podcast like a circumstantial fraughtness Mm. which nonetheless makes that record interesting so i think what it's taught me is even if i'm challenged by listening to it in the sense of am i enjoying this which you know enjoy is a problematic word when talking about like what makes something worth listening to but you know what I mean yeah then there's generally another lens that I can use to approach a record and be like okay so where's the value here and that to me has been really fulfilling in crucial listening I've really had to rummage sometimes I think that really comes across in in your uh, in your shows as well Jack you know the way that you've, you've really approached these with a very open mind but but have you discovered any new favorites for yourself there's lots of records that I've ended up just going ahead and buying. Like obviously, the ones that have come recently are in my head more. So Emma Ruth Rundle picked a Funeral Doom record by Shape of Despair called Monotony Fields, which I listened to driving at night and was like, this is unbelievable. And I'm still listening to that a lot now. They just put a new record. That's been really exciting. What's been really cool, actually, is so is Jeff Entman, which is about episode 50, I think, recommended a record by No Name mm-hmm. called Telephone. And I love that record so much that I bought a gig ticket to go and see her. That's brilliant. Yeah. So within a couple of months, I was there at Shepherd's Bush Empire when she came over to play. And I was like, this is all because of the podcast. Oh, that's which so is, cool, isn't it? That's it's brilliant. awesome. And, you know, that's a record that, because we have these specific roots, I think 
you know, this this leads into like the ubiquity of music, right? We have specific routes yeah. that we can use to access music, and unfortunately, a lot of them, based on algorithms, are based on our existing tastes. So this podcast allows me to skip a lot of that, the stuff that's going to be immediately presented to me, and plonk something in front of me which never would have found it to its way to me otherwise. You know. So you're using other people's tastes. I think that's really great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the algorithm. It's their algorithm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, well, I, mean, I learned such a lot from listening to these shows. And one of the things that really struck me was the way that people, and these are all professional musicians and sound artists, what really inspired them to, uh, to take up music as a, as a career. And uh, it was really striking how many of them underwent some sort of epiphany, often about the right similar sort of age, sort of age about 11 or 12 or maybe sort of around about 18. And it just kept coming up over and over again. That, totally. And they, they would use phrases like, my mind was blown when I heard this record. And I just <laughs> yeah. thought, that I can just totally relate to that. And yeah. uh, I, I'd just love you to comment on that and whether, whether it was the same for you and whether that struck a chord for you, because it certainly did with me. Yeah, oh, it did for you. So again, like it was around those teen years that it really hit you. Absolutely, yeah. Right? Age eleven, hearing for me it was Kraftwerk's Out to Barn when I was about eleven, and uh, just changed my life forever. And uh, but it was so lovely to hear all these other people who'd had similar experiences. Yeah, me too, because it was the same for me as well. Like I actually did because there was a gap in the schedule recently. My own important picks, and two of those were. You know, there's my sugar with nothing, and I discovered that probably aged thirteen, fourteen, and then Yezu's self-titled record, and I was fifteen years old. Like the way I see it, you can only speak from your own experience, right? But I, at that time, or you know, within that few years, had really started to crave my own identity as a music listener, but had also started feeling that music was exciting me in a way that I don't think it did previously. Like, obviously, you know, age 10, 11, I had Who Let The Dogs Out on cassette and thought that was funny. And that was about the pinnacle of my engagement with music, right? That was as good as it got. (laughs) And then I don't know what happens in the interim, but it really starts to enliven and awaken sensations that you're like, okay, right, wow, this is is happening. This is a whole new thing. These doorways are being blown open. Mm. So you've got that sort of mental readiness right to receive music but the sheer naivety of not knowing what's going to trigger those circuits and not really knowing that much music uh, especially if you know like you or I are, are, are not coming from a place of musical ubiquity where you had a stack of records that you know that was that was what you had to listen to and then suddenly you could go anywhere and you were like okay wow so where am I going to get this feeling from next so yeah that's why I think the teen years for me were really um really explosive and I think because a lot of the guests as well are people who've grown up with physical media as their primary means of interaction with music it's been the same for them maybe as well I think that's just so fascinating. I mean, uh, I'm, there's quite a lot of research being done about what happens to your brain as you're growing up, and it goes through these yeah. crucial stages of reorganisation. And I think it's exactly then when, when this, as you say, your world is opening up, and uh, uh, it's, somehow music strikes a chord as you're right at the point when your brain's reorganising. Totally. And then something locks in, because I can probably trace back 
a lot of what I listen to now to inclinations that were born in a space of about three years. You know, Meshuggah got a new album coming out and I'm absolutely pumped. And I think <laughs> purely because I discovered it at that moment, I've got them for life now. I can't shake this compulsion to listen to them and enjoy them. And maybe there's something around the emotional impact too. So as you get older, that's something you're continually searching for. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And the big irony being is, I think the reason it has such an effect is because it defies articulation a lot of the time. And I'm so aware as someone who writes about music and talks about it, that it's a lot of scenic blabbering around the thing, right? It's almost trying to, when you have these hour-long discussions, it's like trying to say so much that you, by some act of approximation, convey the thing through a process of like basically the margin of error cancelling itself out and you eventually get a sense of what that thing is which is you know I think about that a lot like it's all just near misses uh, when talking about music you put that so well so you can never really <laughs> quite put it into words I know you try really hard and you have a great <laughs> way with words but <laughs> yeah yeah exactly in fact the bit the bit of your podcast I like the best is actually the introduction where you talk about the records of the artiste there usually some new record has just come out that yeah they produced yeah. and you always give this lovely poetic description of, of that record and i I'm, I'm quite keen to just collate all those things i might do it in this show just collate those little <laughs> nuggets of of jack because they're magical you do a great job oh of, uh, thank you yeah, i really love that <laughs> <laughs> well that the, the the nice thing about those intros is i like again I do have the tendency to really indulge in my own voice a lot if I don't consciously rein it in. And because I know that I don't want them to be too long, they end up, I think, being a little bit more cryptic than they would be otherwise, which probably works to their advantage. That's the cryptic, right? the cryptic part <laughs> I like. Yeah, you're yeah, quite right. Yeah, wicked. Okay, so we've got all of these nascent musicians being influenced and having these epiphanies and their minds blown open in their teenage years. But another great fascinating thing for me is how they get to hear the music in the first place, particularly, yeah. as you say, back in the 90s, 80s, 70s, often music was really hard to to access, much harder mm -hmm. than it is today. So people are like trading cassettes. Quite a lot of them were you know, exchanging music with friends. But Love it. the other thing that struck me is often it is it's their peers, it's their school friends or an elder sibling, which again, it was like that for me. It was my elder sister who had this spectacular record collection at the time. But never their parents. I was really struck by that. It's never, not one of them said, oh, yeah, this is the music my dad used to like. Not one said that. So, again, yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated with that, you know, the role of a mentor in, in sort of in, inducting you into this world of special music. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's funny because, again, I, I only have my own experience to, to pull on when I'm thinking about why that might be. But... You just want anything but the stuff your parents have given you, right? Because I guess you're like, yeah. when you're 13, you're like, oh, I can develop my own taste and my own autonomy around music. And immediately, I guess you regard what your parents gave you with some degree of suspicion because you're like, well, I never got a choice. So the immediate instinct is to just push back. I mean, ironically for me, R.E.M. were a band that my dad 
uh, played all the time in the car. Okay, because you're quite keen on them, weren't you? At one point? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I um, pushed back against them for, for for quite a while, again, during those teen years. But then, you know, I know not other people who've had this experience, th- those records have come back in again later. But as you say, in terms of important records, it is really the parents. Like, people bring up their parents' record collections, like Backwash, for example, came oh, yes. on and talked about... Yes. Janet Jackson being a big part of her parents' record collection. That's, that was a really nice nice example there. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, but as you say, it is few and far between. It does seem to be, like, um, people in their age group. I guess people who are on the same, like, journey at that same time, right? Or people who are just a little bit older, like I say, an elder yes. brother or sister. It's often often seems to be that, who yeah. you know, just somehow have already entered that adult world maybe a little bit and uh yes. seems extra cool <laughs> yeah that's it like maybe they've, they've got the sort of the wisdom of being like a year older mm. but they're still on the cutting edge <laughs> you know they're not trying to say hey listen to this pink floyd record or what well actually <laughs> it pink was floyd mostly pink floyd, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that yeah. really surprised me pink floyd was the, like, the, the number one weren't they in terms of the choices uh in terms of the number of people yeah, I'm going to collate, I think, what bands have come up the most. Uh, I mean, fully in the knowledge that I don't need to, and Pink Floyd are going to be number one. <laughs> and maybe John Coltrane will be around there. Swans oh, yes. will be up there as well. They've yes. all come up quite a lot, but I'm very interested, that was, a, that was a surprise, wasn't it? That Pink, it was certainly a surprise to me that, that Pink Floyd had been so influential with so many people. Yeah, because it's not really been the same stylistic crop of guests who've come up with Pink Floyd, like Sarah Devarchi came up with Pink Floyd, Lassa Marog came up with Pink Floyd, uh, Steve Von Till from Neurosis came up with Pink Floyd. So yeah, it's come from relatively different directions. Um, Yakabi Karayuki came up with Pink Floyd. Like it's just they just keep coming back in. It's very interesting as to why Pink Floyd seem to be a band who seem to be making records people regard as important. I, I like them. And I'm never annoyed when a record of theirs come up for me to listen to. I'm like, cool, do you know what? Let's do it. Um, my father-in-law is a big Pink Floyd fan, so I like running them past him when I'm listening to them, being like, what do you think of this one? But yeah, <laughs> they're... Um, yeah. It's a big surprise to me, having lived through the 70s. And that's, that was my teenage years, was the, was the 70s. And uh, uh, Pink Floyd... You know, punk happened. Well, not one of your... Respondents chose a chose a punk record, and yet they all chose this sort of <laughs> prog rock, which punk was supposed to kill off. I I was really surprised by that. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And but also like no, like very little Sabbath. Yeah, that's true. I think that's Sabbath true. maybe come up once. Yeah, yeah. So don't know what's going on there. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. really Further interesting. Research though. required. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so these people have been, uh, they've heard this music, maybe an elder sibling or whatever, or a friend has introduced them to it. But then something else happens, because these people all go on and produce music. Mm. So I'm really interested, again, what, what turns a listener into a creator? So there's something else happening there. I don't know whether you could reflect on that. Yeah. What was it for you? I'm intrigued, because I couldn't really find a very interesting answer to this other than, like, I pick, I just really like certain music and I picked up an instrument. I was like, well, I want to play it then. But I think that's it, isn't it? The barrier to entry is buying an instrument and being like, I'm going to give this a punt. 
actually now I'm starting to talk about it maybe there's a few other factors involved like it's interesting it's a lot of people come in from say being classically trained on a musical instrument maybe not of their own volition like maybe they learn from a long age, young age because a parent said right do this and then they sort of deviated but yeah it definitely seems in a lot of cases and this is why I love the podcast as well there's there's a real blurred line between listening and creating which means that my questions when I speak to the guests are able to veer quite organically between why do you like listening to this to how does that feed into what you do and generally there's an answer there um because it's not like a you know a hard line between listener and making music but no that's an interesting thing isn't it you've mm. you've made a really good point there and uh, i suppose it comes down to just the degree of inspiration you know your mind maybe is so blown you just think i want to have a go at that but yeah not everybody reacts the same way though do they so that's the interesting thing there yeah totally i i think about when you know people talk about the velvet underground and everyone hearing them started a band like slint as well it's funny when Slint released Spiderland in 1991, you saw a load of bands cropping up with debut albums that sounded a lot like Slint. So you can kind of see these particular records just causing this transfer from like listener to, oh my gosh, I want to do that. Um, I Particularly, I guess, if it's music that has a low technical bar for entry. Not particularly yeah, that that's, complicated. That's why I do electronics. Anyone can do electronics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's that's why I'm a drone artist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and of course we mentioned punk earlier, and of course that was the whole exactly. ethos of punk was anyone could have a go. So totally. it's lovely yeah. to see that that spirit still alive. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to ask you a little bit. You've already sort of touched on this a little bit, Jack, but uh, your your life as a listener. You, you sound, it sounds like you're you're your life is full of music you know you're doing <laughs> you're doing this show and as you're writing about it and you're creating it but you're also spending a lot of time listening to it and i'm i'm very struck when i listen to these podcasts one show you might be saying oh yeah i listened to this one in the car or i was running or you know on the way to work whatever it is and i just i just get this impression of you just relentlessly listening to music yeah. i don't know how how accurate that is as a picture yeah, it's been interesting to see how listening has changed in terms of where it fits into my life. Like, I think I was... Um, so I work part-time, and up until the birth of my son, that meant uh, at least two days in the week, I had a lot of time where I could listen to music. Uh, I work from home now, obviously, as well. A lot of that is a different kind of listening, but nonetheless, listen to a lot of music when I'm at home. To be honest, I, I mean, I'm probably now I listen to less music because I am spending more time with my boy. And there's a lot of music that gets thrown up on the podcast that I don't think is great for blasting in the lounge while we're playing with trucks. <laughs> so that, that's restricted the times at which I can engage with listening. But and obviously as well, if I want to do it really properly, the 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 opening that I've got is evenings for like two hours. Right. So that's when I really try if I can I'm not great at it to be honest I go, I go through phases but at the moment I'm I'm really off but I will try and listen to records in the dark with no distractions which is you know absolutely the the way to go if you want to really feel the impact of them um also as well I do need to remind myself sometimes I think at the moments where say I'm doing the washing up and the boy's having a nap or whatever, 
Silence is fine right. as well. I think those interstitial moments where you can reflect on what you've listened to or reflect on things outside of the podcast that might also uh, you know, exist in your life is a good thing. I And I also as well, maybe this will come up, but this is the, the issue I have with streaming where the encouragement is towards continuous right. engagement and music that doesn't have any boundaries or edges. I think that's why I love physical I see. So, mediums. Yes, you'd rather have a sort albums. of discreet listening experience than then a bit of wrapped in a bit of silence to to let it sort of totally absorb. Yeah, yeah. Maybe since the the advent of streaming, perhaps that has, even though I, I'm not on a streaming platform anymore, has impacted my listening behaviour and made me feel like that I want to listen all the time because. Yeah, I do think it's important to have those boundaries at the beginning and ending of a record just to reflect on what you've experienced, you know. So I probably do need to introduce more silence back in is what I'm saying. One of the reasons I'm trying to put these shows together is to um, spread a bit of positivity around the world. And that seems to be particularly needed right at the moment with all these awful things happening out there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, personally, I feel and I I can see, you you know, you you share this, Jack, uh, is that music and sound, it can be a force for good in the world. And I I just wonder whether whether you'd like to comment on that. You know, what is it that, that music can offer that can really, you know, help improve things and help save the world (laughs) am i right about that (laughs) yeah well do you know what funnily enough this episode hasn't come out yet but i spoke with yorgis sakalariu who talked about i think it was in relation to a zinakis work that we touched on it specifically but what's involved in deep listening is a, a form of scrutiny and prolonged attention which is really important 
a lot of life, at least for me, is spent skimming stuff or ingesting information without necessarily being able to take the time to scrutinize it. But I think you are absolutely encouraged by certain forces in this world to take things as they are given. I think the ability to uh, exercise that muscle for prolonged attention and critical faculties, so really listening to an album, thinking about how it affects you, if something challenges you, reflecting on your own reaction, reflecting on the contents of the experience and coming to a decision about where you land with it, are so important, I think, within in terms of engaging with a lot of the forces in this world who do want to dupe you. So I think that's really important from that perspective. Also, I think making music is a lot about agency, right? Um, there's there's not necessarily a ton of avenues that you're given in order to set your own agenda in terms of, you know, say if you work for a, a company, you're working within their confines, you are limited to the decisions that you can make uh, as a, a consumer within a capitalist setup. To make music is to exercise and practice your agency and and your and the delivery of your ideas. And I think it's a good way to exercise the fact that yeah, you can make stuff happen quite literally in sound, and it's very easy to transpose that over to something else. That's really beautifully put, Jack. I really love that answer. And um, yeah, and and I think you talk, touch on this in your in your podcast too. It's partly about sharing, isn't it? So totally. uh, your whole shows are based around sharing this enjoyment of music. So it really can bring people together, as you say, when you're making music, but also as listeners. And I think that's a lovely a lovely positive point too. Yeah, hundred percent. And you also get that really pleasant thing where listening intensely is a exclusively solo experience like you can do it in company but the actual effect of sound upon your body and your ears is entirely yours so to then come into a conversation with people and be like how was that for you or to get their thoughts on experience you've also had is really euphoric i think that's a great word. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> let's 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 leave it there with the word euphoric. That's fantastic. <laughs> but you but you touched there on, on and I'm really glad you brought it up the this issue of deep listening because um, and again it, it crops up in your in your show a few times, doesn't it, with, with mm-hmm. various respondents? Um, and that's something I've been trying to work on myself a bit to to improve my own sort of deep listening practice. And I just wonder whether that's something you've you've been sort of working at too. Big time. Yeah, hugely. Um, Like I say, it's something that I've got out of the habit of recently. But whenever I actually take the time to sit down and listen to records with all of my attention, I absolutely never regret it. So, yeah, it's... uh, (laughs) You know, for example, I used to do a lot of meditation as well. I got similar effects from that where you're just breaking from that day-to-day rumbling on through different tasks, half your mind on the thing you're going to do. You know, again, this is parenting, right? Where you you are stopping the child from falling over and you're thinking about what's for dinner. And to be able to take all of those threads of thought and put them in the direction of, something for like an hour is so nourishing uh 
so yeah i really want to do more of it um it for some reason and this is again this is maybe a symptom of like a, a visually led culture uh it almost feels like you could be doing something right there's a voice in the back of your head where you're like i could be doing something more useful right now <laughs> yeah yeah whereas i would happily spend you know there's very little resistance to spending two hours watching a film or even worse faffing about doing very little at all but on there yeah sound is relegated to this sense of like what you you know surely your eyes have got to be doing something as well right so Mm. yeah i think it's really valuable and um having this conversation with you adrian again has spurred it to the top of my list of things that i really need to do which is get back to listening to records in the evening again Put that on your to-do list too, then. Really <laughs> that's that's brilliant. I mean, we've already touched on this whole issue around records maybe being a sort of obsolete format, but you've defended them very well in terms of your own musical journey. Uh, but you've also touched on you know this whole shift towards streaming, and but also I think it's it's more than just how music sort of ubiquitous now. Um, it's also this issue around that everyone's now making music, so that that. I think, as you mentioned earlier, the barriers to entry now are much lower than they used to be. You know, we don't have to be um, Keith Emerson with a massive Moog synthesizer now to be able to, <laughs> to start to make music ourselves. And that, I think that's a real big posit- positive step that, in a way, music's been democratised and we can all contribute. We can share it. And, you know, the Internet's amazing for that. But I noticed on, a, on yeah. some of the forums that I'm part of that... Um, a lot of people out there making stuff are very annoyed that nobody's listening to what they produce. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I just I just wonder whether you'd like to comment on that, you know, because there's this tension, isn't there, if we're all out there spending time making music, we can't also be listening to it. So, yeah. And I'm fascinated how you balance those activities within your own life. People say, don't they, that I make music for myself and I don't care what people think. That's a phrase that comes up a lot. I think if I'm being really honest with myself, that is entirely what I believe. It's still galling if no one buys or listens to your stuff, but I do think you have to remember, like, not you as in, like, the general you. People have no obligation to do so. And if you are truly making it for yourself, I I honestly think there is gratification in looking at this thing in front of you and being like, I took this nebulous idea, maybe not even that, and crafted something, maybe an, a whole album, and expressed this thing which falls between the margins of language, this beautiful thing that expresses so much. Who gives a monkeys if anyone listens to it? That's incredible. <laughs> and I think we, yeah. we, we do have to question, and it's easy to say this as someone who isn't dependent on making money from music, right? So I think that's a very important point. But if you're doing this because you have the compulsion to do so and you're not financially dependent upon it, you do have to question the forces that tell you, I I should care how many people are listening to this. Like, if there's more people listening, there's a general consensus within a lot of communities that say Ed Sheeran is not the greatest musician in the world. So if you extrapolate that logic all the way down... There is absolutely no reflection on the quality of what you've done based on how many people are listening to it. We were talking just before <laughs> we started this about a gig that I hosted or helped host during the week where there are about as many in the audience as there was people playing. 
And that's absolutely fine because I think everyone's there to just get either play loud sound and feel the effect upon them or hear it. And if all those people have that experience and enjoy it, amazing. <laughs> you know, I'm, we're not trying to live, like, subsist off it. Uh, that's a real privilege. So just enjoy it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's such a great thing to do, that, Jack, to organise, you know, things like that. Where And it's a community thing. So the community of makers comes together and shares it with each other. I think that's really, really powerful. And it doesn't need to be about, right. you know, even sort of consuming music or... or or just having it as a background, it has a lot more meaning, doesn't it, if it's uh, got that sort of community aspect to it. I am someone who gets very socially anxious, right? So over the period of COVID, had really forgotten how lovely it is to be in a room of lovely people listening to music and just remembered that there's a very large risk of me making a buffoon of myself in public, right? And actually what comes through whenever you go to one of those gigs is it's just awesome to be in a company of people that will support you as you're playing talk to you afterwards you get to talk about what they're doing it's the you know especially if you're into like experimental music right those situations aren't always that frequent where you've got 10 people who all want to talk about your one note drone so love it it's really precious and you've just described that perfectly there we go the magic of music right there I'd love to come on to your, your magazine now, but just as a sort of bridge between what you were just saying, you use this word attention and, and uh-huh. you know, it's listeners. It's about as giving a, attention to somebody else's work, isn't it? And that, mm-hmm. that attention is really valuable. But, you know, I think a lot of people have find it, you know, lots of things are competing uh, for people's attention now. So I was just fascinated that you, you chose attention as the name of your magazine. And, uh, 
particularly given these challenges around giving attention yeah. to music these days. So I'd love for you to just explain a little bit your thinking behind your magazine. Well, I didn't actually come up with the name, so it was actually <laughs> a totally different prospect before I took it over. So I believe it was probably my friend Ben Martin, who was the original editor of Attention magazine back when it was like a student press in 2009, 2010. And um, it covered loads of stuff, music, politics, literature, all this business. And then I took it over in like 2011 and just didn't change the name because it was already rolling. Um, also, I, I don't really have the the money to redesign a website or the know-how. So I was like, well, we might as well keep it as it is. And it just kind of seamlessly rumbled on like that. But as you say, I think it's ended up being quite appropriate. So I've just left it as it is, really. And it's grown, I mean, over the over the time you've been in charge of it. I mean, uh, I don't know what sort of readership you have, but again, it's just an amazing achievement to, to review so many records and do all of these interviews. I just don't know how you find, find time to do it, Jack. It's extraordinary. Because <laughs> it's just you, isn't it? I mean, it's basically just you doing it. It's just me. I, again, because I work part-time, um, that opens up a lot, of, a lot of time. I do review a lot less since having my son so I, I the reviews are really throttled back i think the thing that i've realized is i'm keen to protect the podcast and make sure that comes out um frequently because that's what i get the biggest gratification from but yeah so also as well i think um a lot of the stuff that i do with like attention and you know the label my own music is very visible stuff um so it makes it seem like I'm doing a lot, but I just put all of it on the internet. <laughs> so everything I do is is you know available. You're to entirely visible. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's still yeah. a great achievement, Jack. You should be really proud of it, and it's always a, a great read. Um, Thank you. So let's come on to your label. So this is the label Hard Return, and I, I think we shared this via email, didn't we? This quote, one of my favourite. Frank Zappa quotes, which is just what the world needs, another record label. So so why another record label? Because um, I, I disagree with Frank Zappa primarily. I mean, I I, I, I think for me, uh, I got very excited about... I wanted to do a label, I think, because I just never have, and it didn't necessarily feel comfortable for me to do it. And when... You you probably had this as well, Adrian, but I really love experimental sound and sound art. And what I seem to have done through the past 10, 12 years is find various different routes of approaching that. So making music, writing about music, putting on events, a label just hadn't happened yet. And I didn't feel particularly comfortable about me being somehow responsible for distributing and putting out other people's work that felt like a lot of responsibility and I just decided to go for it but also I decided to do it as a digital only label like I'd seen other labels who were working as digital only and that kind of told me that that was possible and I was like well that reduces a lot of the admin also um, the prospect of sinking a lot of money into it which I don't didn't necessarily want to do 
I didn't want boxes of unsold records in my room either. So yeah, that happens. again. <laughs> <laughs> so the the barrier to entry was very low, right? Um, but also, I was really interested in this idea of so the label is dedicated to repetitive and persistent music. I was very very interested in doing a label that stays really tight to a thematic concept. So all the artwork is just yeah, I love the, that. Yeah, it's really it, minimal. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And there are you know other labels that I was inspired by when deciding to do this, like a label formerly known as SMLL, um, who have also a very reduced aesthetic. So I just had this really clear idea of what I wanted to do. I also thought if I'm nervous about the act of curation and like, because I was, I was a bit unsure about that, like whether I could trust myself to say, I'm going to take your work. I like, I think this is good. I'm going to take your work and I'm going to put it out there. And whether or not I had um, the right kind of curatorial faculties to do that effectively. But I figured if I had a really clear concept, like, repetitive and persistent music provided it fulfilled that remit generally speaking i'm pretty happy to really you know to, to release yeah. it but why, um, why did you choose those as a, a focus though that interests me why repetitive and persistent just excites me so much to hear something going on for a long time i just uh so so there's a particular record that comes into my head which is prime by dead neanderthals which is this improvisation between drums and two saxophones that goes on for I think 35 minutes but there's this feeling you get where after one minute you're like wow this is a lot after two minutes you start to cotton on to the fact that they are just going to continue doing this for the entire duration of the record and that projected future where you're like I'm in it now there's an endurance aspect to this that they uh, like for them and for me and you'll you know you're going to go through that that undulation of experience and reception as that thing stays sub stubbornly the same and your listening evolves and changes uh it just excites me so much and and it just does so much to time when you're stranded halfway down a record like that you forget how it really started you don't know necessarily when it's going to end. That feeling of being completely subsumed in music and and having your sense of time completely handed over to a piece of work is such a buzz for me. I love it. So that's why I picked that as the. You've described the thing. that so perfectly, Jack. Yeah, it's <laughs> reminding me we once put on a concert of uh, the Mont Young piece, which is just two notes that you play for a very long time that's the inspiration <sighs> and uh, so I think we did it for over an hour and it's just two notes continuously played and my poor wife was one of the few members in the audience <laughs> and it was uh, it was just like what <laughs> you said for, for after two minutes she was okay with it after four minutes she thought I can't bear this anymore because they're just going to carry on doing this but what's weird is just what you say you know this is somebody who's never really uh, spent any time listening to persistent music after about 20 minutes she started to get really into it and by the end she didn't want it to stop so it's just oh, like what wow you said. that's yeah. so amazing somehow it does something doesn't it to your mind and like you say 100%. The, uh, the perception of time so yeah i totally see what you're saying there. it intersects with deep listening because 
where I, I think about this with repetitive and persistent music is it opens up what I think of as a vertical axis within listening. So rather than a composition that moves through time and develops, has verses and choruses and crescendos, you have one gesture that you're presented with over and over again. And so you just drill down into this one gesture. You're not moving forward. You're not moving backward. It feels to me very vertical. And that I find so fascinating and opens up a load of unexpected reactions as your brain is just basically peeling back layers of this thing. So really cool to see hear, hear about your, your, your wife having that reaction. I also think of like someone like Stuart Lee, the comic, right, who will say a joke that is funny right. and then pulp it by saying it over and over again until people stop laughing, and then people start laughing again. <laughs> they do, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's like that's a guy who really understands minimalism. You're quite right. You're yeah, quite right. Yeah, and it's a really like loud manifestation of the effect of repetition. So let's talk a bit about your own work as a performer, Jack, because I've been loving playing through your, your <laughs> back catalogue over the past few weeks. And, uh, I mean, I'd love to start with the question around what we were just talking about, this this idea of persistent uh, repetitive music, because that's, I mean, you've, you've actually worked in a whole range of different genres, haven't you, in, in your sort of performative practice. But part of what you've done has been more drone-based. And I have to say, I've loved particularly your, your sort of more drone-based work. And I just wonder whether, is that where you feel your work heading in the future? Yeah, I think so. I think it's become increasingly interesting to me. But then I'm also aware that I go through phases where I think there's two poles that I swing between. And one of them is doing very minimal stuff. And I think increasingly like, like repetitive and persistent stuff. So the thing that I did at the gig on Wednesday was a note on a bass and a drum machine and a synth and the note on the synth and the bass was the same but phasing slightly in and out and that was about all the movement and I want to basically challenge myself to to do less and to feel comfortable doing less as well again I think that's something that brings you into like confrontation with whether or not you're really doing this for yourself if you're worried about boring people not only are you probably patronizing them like they're totally capable of of having a, a an ever renewing experience with what you're putting in front of them but again you're not really properly fastening your attention to what you're creating right so 
there's there's that element of it which I'm really interested in, which is it puts a lot of challenges to me in terms of how I relate to making music. But the other way that I tend to swing is them just really liking a nice tune and okay. making like that's not what I thought you were going to say there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so like the stuff I do as tutor, which is like shoegazy stuff, where melody has always been really important and that um i guess it's kind of the inverse where the minimal stuff is more a conceptually driven thing that then opens up into an experience whereas with the tutor stuff i start with a melody that just makes me feel i mean this is like like everyone just a melody that makes me feel really buzzed and then i expand on it through you know various different means and a more like technical approach right so I think I swing between those two things. So while at the moment I'm really into doing repetitive stuff, at some point I'll just want to play a few chords again. So that will doubtless come back round. And could you say maybe a little bit about your musical history as a performer that's brought you to this point? Because you've, you've played in a bunch of different bands you, with a load of different collaborators. Yeah, yeah. So I started off very into post-metal when I was like 16. You know, if we're talking about the thing that really fires people into making music that's what it was for me it's like bands like cult of luna pelican yezu specifically so a lot of my early music was based around what i call heavy shoegaze so like basically like shoegaze music but slowed right down with a seven string guitar all home recorded like solo projects are where i feel most comfortable so that's where i kind of started out and then throughout my 20s, branched out into the more abstract drone-based stuff under various guises. Um, I haven't played in loads of bands. I think most prominently I played in Swallowing with a few people who were also involved in Witch Cult. And that was like a sort of very pared back doom metal band, I guess. Um with a lot of noise and obnoxious repetition thrown in. And then, yeah, they've kind of been, the again, the path that I, I guess I'm still following now. So, like, I would say my main bases are the, yeah, like I say, the minimal drone stuff and the sort of heavy shoegaze thing, which is somehow still rumbling on. Um, yeah. I know, you know, I did a few bands in my like very early 20s, like me and my wife before we were even together. We did Cassini Division with Ben, who started Attention Magazine. So small world. Um, yeah, there's been a f- there's 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 been a few things throughout the years. But yeah, that's where I am now. Really nice. Yeah. So what I'm going to do, if you don't mind, Jack, is to intersperse some of our dialogue with a few snippets yeah. from your back catalogue. And I'm going to curate fine. that. I hope yeah, you don't you. mind. I'm going to uh, <laughs> exert curatorial control over that. But but is there anything that you'd really love me to draw attention to, uh, um, to listeners out there? I did a tutor EP called In Orbit, which came out on the 31st of December last year and has no guitars in it. I don't know if that's a lie. It has very, very minimal guitars in it but it's mainly like soft synth, soft synth electronics and it's a very hushed thing. I've not really done anything like it before, at least not for the entire release. And 
I love it. I mean, I, I, I hope people also do this as well, but I'm still listening to it now. Like, I really like listening to my own music, all right? You, if you make it for yourself, it's plugging a hole that isn't previously filled. So if people wanted to check that out, they'd be absolutely more than welcome. And then also as well, I did a tape on Cruel Nature recordings called Beams with my Upward project, which was a lot of fun and kind of brought that heavy shoegaze energy from Tutor into my project that I do as Upward, which is primarily like Ebo-based drones. And that particular tape feels like it epitomised the kind of sound that I'd been driving at for probably about a year prior to that point and feel like I really got to the nub of on that tape. So, yeah. I think you made some you made some great choices. Cool, there, nice Jack. one. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I'll include some snippets there. That's that's brilliant. And and just to recap, where again are these, yeah. these all on Bandcamp? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Tutor is a Tutor C H U T E R dot Bandcamp dot com, and that's where all the Tutor releases are. And then Cruel Nature. Oh, I think that's Cruel Nature Recordings dot Bandcamp dot com. But also there's an Upward Bandcamp at upwardnoise.bandcamp.com as well, which I intermittently update. Well, that's been so kind of you, Jay. I really appreciate it. Thanks ever so much. It's been a delight to to chat. And what I want to do is to just close with some of my favourite quotes from the podcast, which I think <laughs> I, I shared with you. So you're welcome to comment on these. And Maybe you've got your own favourite quotes, but uh, I just thought these were wonderful. And one of them was actually... From you, wasn't it, that you'd forgotten? <laughs> yeah, not that I knew <laughs> that it. That was the case. <laughs> but uh, here we go. So the first one is, music can exist out of time and crystallise the moment of time you're in, which I think is just beautiful. Mm. There's a dimension of friendship that can only be expressed through music and by playing together. The amazing thing about music is from whatever culture or country you're from, you can understand music even if you don't understand the language. Mm. Music opened a door to my sense of self, which I'm sure is true for me and many other people. Totally. And my, my absolute favourite, which is somehow captures it all. One teenage listen is worth 200 <laughs> in middle age. I love that. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, it's Victoria Shen. Yeah, she's spot on. Um one that I remember from Sarah Henney's, I can't remember the ex- I, it was it was to do with um, a Maha Shalal Hashbaz release, who were obviously an insanely prolific band, and I think they did an album with like a hundred. I, I can't remember the exact figure, but say one hundred eighty-seven tracks on it. And she was like, "Have you ever done one hundred eighty-seven of anything?" <laughs> I was like, "That's a really good point." <laughs> Yeah, that's so brilliant. that's one that always sticks in my head. Oh, I yeah. love that. I'm going to have to do 187 of something then now. That <laughs> you just to prove it wrong. Yeah, yeah brilliant. <laughs> anyway, thanks ever so much, Jack. That's been brilliant and uh, really appreciate your time there. So, so thanks again. Hey, Adrian, f- thank you so much. Honestly, the energy you've given to listening to the podcast and putting together these wicked questions is deeply humbling. So thank you so much. I think it's like a ballet of negative space. It's a very gloopy, sloshy record. I feel like it would feel like warm jelly if you were to hold it. 
this sense of muscles clenching and unclenching. You're just stranded in this ricochet of drones and sound. Just getting signals, kind of pulsing through via a membrane. Micro-sized behaviour that's just pinging back and forth and all over the place. And bristle into the edges of pure noise at points. Many instruments that circulate around the edges or flit around at the front like butterflies. They become these really beautiful, kind of flourishing, unfurling textures. sounds like the most beautiful air conditioning felt very angular I I think of it almost like these buckled bent bits of metal it was very angular a lot of stop starts pushed in circles and sometimes with these little melodic details introduced to the whole thing like a coloured dye you know when you come to say a sentence that doesn't quite have a shape yet and you make those sounds like ah and you know those kind of shapeless moments of articulated thought in progress sort of caught between several potential states of being and settling in this sort of quivering suspenseful potential state of enunciation the way that sounds sit inside your head feels very tactile it's like someone plucking the skin on your head or tapping on your skull and suddenly I'm hearing layers upon layers of sound that have never come to my attention before yeah I had my mind blown by some completely fresh experiences There's a mixture of spontaneity and the present tense and lineage and identity. Multiple versions of time weaving in and out of each other. It's a slow sense of inquisition into who we are as human beings and using the gateways of the elements, the stars, the passage of time into the ancient past and into the future. There are so many different gestures compacted together. So many different fidelities, fluid collages of different events and circumstances. There's something very meditative about it. You come away knowing that you're feeling something very intensely, but 
it's knotted and left with you to unpick. Gorgeous flow to the whole thing and even tonally I think there's so many more moments of seamlessness and curved edges. It's beautiful, it feels very live and very present as well. These sounds back again as they try to wriggle free like massive electronic fish. It just reaches a point of insanity and stays there for far too long. <laughs> I could go on and on, but also there's a certain aspect of the experience which, like all amazing experiences, just falls slightly outside of reach of what I can really conjure into words. I'm still trying. It almost sounds like a shoal of fish all calibrating a change of direction and, and realigning their minds as they do so. Everything's flickering all over the place and suddenly it settles into alignment. The most beautiful way of navigating the unknown. The melodies have this wilting darkness to them, this shadow play that I absolutely love. It just sounds kind of alien, almost sci-fi and right-angled. It's really striking. A bit like with memory and daydreaming, when you have a very vivid memory and it overlays upon your present circumstances and feels as close and as palpable as anything that might exist in your material reality. Almost like a memory that's only being vaguely recollected, but at the same time, you get this lucidity. It's the palpability of airflow, the sense that you can feel the direction of airflow, how harmonics illuminate, how air is bristling and quivering and pulsing. At the same time as you've got these big explosive battering ram style events you've also got these scuttling little details all working their way around the edges of the stereo frame like they're kind of unraveling or spilling slowly in all directions the embodiment of what does blood sound like oh it's great but the experience of listening itself is completely Unfathomable, indescribable. The first couple of listens turn out being very bewildering indeed. Diving in and out of the ground like tree roots is sort of embedded in nature somehow. There's that element to it. All of the ornamentation is stripped away and you just get that formless core to what that music is trying to say. So 
sometimes it ends up in some quite strange and dissonant places. The record seems to hover in this non-state for its entire duration. It's quite a long record, but it's absolutely gorgeous. It's the kind of music that really magnifies small details and imperfections, tiny charms. I feel my physical location vanishing into this liminal surface underwater experience. But also as well, it does have that darkness around the edges, which also perforates. A lot of very strange synthesizer divergences. It's like having a raindrop and tilting it around a pane of glass. And then suddenly it all drains away and just leaves this spindle and then something else changes and suddenly you're somewhere else. But there's always like the kernel of the next within the now. Change is such an intense and unexpected process within the music. It seems to take place within like a metal or concrete box. There's a lot of very harsh cold reflections and there's definitely a sense of contraction of space collapse of boundaries between distinct entities stretches it over time and space in a way that seems to just unravel in all directions into the infinite seems to be hovering in like a superposition difficult to say what it's about pays homage to the power of generating internal universes. It has this really fragmentary nature to it, this sense of different speeds of passing time, different spaces, different interiors. Exploring what happens when you probe from one destination into an unknown, across a boundary... Sometimes it sounds like girders flying past your head and clanging together. It's also, to my mind, a study of impermanence. It's this very haptic, responsive, organic quality to it. It's always on the move, always seems to be responding to where it's been. The whole thing has this energy to it, almost like the dynamism of memory, the sense that a memory of somewhere fond is slowly revealing itself. Emotions and tangential daydreams. Not sure if I'm making much sense, but it's captivating music. 